Bar for the Bring a Trailer podcast. I'm Randy Nonnenberg, co-founder of BAT, and I'm here with Howard Swig, our head of auctions. How you doing, Howard? Very well. We're excited to be back. We both got invited back, so that's the first good news. We're excited to uh, be here and share some uh, cool topics with you today. We're going to dive right into it. We're going to talk about some interesting submissions that Howard's been seeing uh, that'll kickstart some conversation. And then an interesting one for both of us, which is seasonality. A lot of people ask, hey, is it a good time to sell? Is it a bad time to sell? There's snow on the ground. Like, should I sell my convertible? We have some really interesting uh, data from BAT over the years of, of you know what that looks like and some stories and some uh, anecdotes about uh, what we've seen uh, in terms of listings and and sales in the middle of summer um, and in the the uh, dead of winter, so I think that'll be interesting to talk about. And then uh, third, after that, we'll have a, a cool interview that Howard's going to be doing. Howard, who are you interviewing today? Today we've got Jason Van Sickle, who's the curator of vehicles for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. We are doing a cool partnership with them. Um, they are deaccessioning. Uh, a large grouping of cars and motorcycles, passenger cars, race cars, and motorcycles from the museum collection. Uh, so we'll have Jason on to chat about Indy, the museum, the Indy 500, and all sorts of stuff. Cool. I've been really psyched to watch those on the site, and that's been an interesting partnership to develop on BAT and have them selling, you know, super pre-war type stuff all the way up to they're going to start potentially selling some more modern sports cars. So that uh, that museum is full of all sorts of stuff. But uh, submissions, Howard, let's dive in. I mean, every week we could sit here and talk about just the most recent week of uh, curveballs that you and your team have seen. Um, and we've had some funny text threads going with the whole staff or uh, different members of staff seeing cars come through this week. What, uh, what has stood out to you? Oh, man. I mean, like for starters, how many submit total submissions have we had since the start of BAT auctions in 2014? Like, I don't know, 200,000, 250,000? Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's right around 200,000, I think. So, yeah, I mean, at, at that level, you know, when something comes along that we've never seen before, that has never been submitted in over 200,000 uh, submissions, we definitely take notice. I mean, that can be everything from a Lamborghini Miura to a, uh, 83 Mercury links, like it's, uh, you know, it's all over the map. So um, the one that caught my attention recently was a Renault Alliance Cup car. Uh, Never had seen one of those before. Honestly, I wasn't really even aware of what it was. Um, So Renault Alliance Cup car, big picture. Uh, In the 1980s, there were some really wonderful things happening at the lower rungs of the racing world. Uh, So I, you know, shot Randy attacks like Alliance Cup car. This is unbelievable. Um, And we kind of got into a back and forth of uh, obscure and defunct racing series, uh, single mark series and uh, mixed. Uh, I mean, no one's talking about that, Randy. I mean, Twitter, Clubhouse, no one's talking about obscure defunct racing series. Absolutely not. Well, you, I mean, you got to say more about that, right? I mean, it's common for us to to fire text back and forth like, have you seen this mission? It's crazy. And uh, on this one, I think you roped in some other staffers, too, and we're trying to quiz them. Who's ever heard of this? But you're not giving me credit, dude, because I fired back and said, when was that? 2009? 2010? Um, 
I featured some sketchy Craigslist ad for a Alliance Cup card. I'm actually trying to figure out if it's the same one that this dude submitted. Uh, we had a little single photo uh, Craigslist feature for an Alliance Cup car, and there's a picture of it in the corkscrew at Laguna in the day. And I'm wondering if that has now come back around, you know, 11 years later, and whoever's been, you know, using it. Um, uh, to uh, occupy the corner of their workshop is selling it now, or is, is are we going to get you know two different Alliance Cup cars on the same on the same platform? That is true. Yeah, I said and you were like, yeah, dude, Alliance Cup car. I, I featured one ten years ago. Here's the <laughs> um, yeah, I was this that definitely piqued my curiosity. So yeah, Renault Alliance Racing Series. What is that all about? Renault. So what was the Renault Alliance? Uh, I believe it replaced the Le Car the outgoing Le Car, which I think was the only car ever made with plastic gears. Um, <laughs> uh, Alliance was the sedan. Uh, the Renault Encore was the hatchback. So they had the Alliance Cup, which was sedan only, single mark sedan only, which was West Coast, which is that wonderful uh, uh, ad coming through turn nine at Laguna. You're probably talking about the same one. Wait, but they didn't, um, they didn't race it coast to coast? This was a West Coast phenomenon? Uh, as far as I can, uh, my research indicates uh, Alliance was West Coast, and then they raced the Encore hatches on the East Coast. Oh, man. That was the Renault Focum Cup, not to be confused with the Renault Alliance Cup. Which I think it was called the Renault Cup. Um, these were, yeah, so these cars were uh, 100% built in Wisconsin. So any ties to French heritage were pretty uh, limited. Um, I think Renault, I mean, they were, I think probably strapped for cash. They were trying to market the R5 turbo that was coming out. So they wanted to do a cool race series. Um, actually the only, uh, the most notable driver, and this is uh, relevant to BAT, the most notable driver to come out of the Alliance series was Parker Johnstone, who went on to drive Indy cars, and who also happens to be a very active BAT commenter and bidder. Fantastic. Yeah. In the, in the last few years, I remember seeing Parker Johnstone, I think out of Seattle now, or I forget where he's out of now, but um, he did some bidding. He might've done some selling. I always love it when there's uh, people from the, you know, the, the ages of uh, Indy 500 open wheel lore, uh, in the bidding action and, and especially commenting action, um, doing that sort of stuff. So he, I wonder if he got his start or if he was just kind of fooling around, scoring some SCCA points, uh, trying to, trying to do that. Or what do you do? You win a, win a free tire rack gift certificate. If you win the season of uh, the Alliance cup or what, I don't know what the, uh, what the purse was for that crew. He was earning his stripes, you know, a lot of racers. If you don't have a rich family, you can't get into Formula 2000. You you hop into the Alliance Cup, win some races, turn some heads, and maybe you, you know, maybe Roger Penske gives you a call one day. That's right. And so I pretty quickly pivoted that conversation on that text to Peugeot 505s also in SCCA competition. And so that's, I think, sent some people scrambling for, uh, some YouTube footage or figuring out who those people were. And then you circled back that that was some connection with this, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you, you then went, uh, took an even deeper cut on uh, SCCA racing series from the 80s. Uh, you were like, yeah, 505 Turbo SCCA cars were amazing. That was an amazing series. 
And so meanwhile, I'm texting with Randy and the, and the crew and emailing with Renault Alliance Cup owner. And I'm saying, oh, this is such a wonderful forgotten piece of history. And he's right back to me as I'm texting these guys saying, oh, here's a picture of my 505 Turbo SCCA championship winning car. And I'm like, guys, this guy owns the 505 Turbo. <laughs> can't, you can't I, was make <laughs> I was laughing when that came through. Of course, the same guy who owns one of those owns the other. And hopefully he knows how to turn the wrenches or has a mechanic who, you know, has some sympathy for those cars. Who knows how you get one of those to run. Uh, but, you know, I think both of them were pretty much showroom stock classes. So it's not like they were doing, you know, wild uh, race engines in these crazy boxy sedans. These were like pretty, the 505s at least, I remember being pretty stock in their configuration, you know, stock alloy wheels, um, I think stripped interior, but pretty stock exterior with all the real lights in it and everything. And they're out going around, uh, you know, road America or whatever, and, uh, made for some interesting stuff. But, but I think some of the guys found, um, some YouTube vids of some of that era, who knows if Parker Johnstone was driving or who else was in there. But, uh, anyway, there, that, that conversation went there and then even deeper a little bit on some of those series. Yeah, I mean, even more wonderful in the, in the show in 1980s showrooms, uh, showroom stock discussion, um, and which you tipped me off to was I guess fell under the banner of the SCCA race truck challenge. Uh, you have a special place in your heart for the Stroh's Light sponsored Jeep Comanche, uh, so I had to go in on this. Um, SCCA did this series for uh, basically showroom stock trucks of the period. So we're talking Jeep Comanches. We're talking Nissan hard bodies, all the stuff we list all the time that people love. Ford uh, Ranger, you know, early boxy Ford Ranger, general tire, livery Ford Ranger. Uh, and I think actually of yeah. all of these, the French sedans and the truck racing, oh. the, the easiest to pull up and see videos and some still photos of was the trucks because they're so sport truck SCCA racing it's just ridiculous and fantastic. Uh, obviously, you know, when I think truck or pickup truck racing, usually think, uh, you know, junior ranks of NASCAR and different sorts of, you know, tracker boat sponsored stuff and just crazy things that exist. And you kind of scratch your head a little bit, but it's fun to watch. Uh, but on a road course, looking at people trying to set up pickup trucks for road course uh, with no tube frame. I think these are still unibody or body on frame must have been body on frame if they were light duty two wheel drive trucks of the 80s. And yeah, and they're tuning these, you know, live axle, uh, potentially leaf sprung pickup trucks to go run around corners on road courses. It was it's just pretty absurd, uh, but cool that it happened. And the reason my mind jumped there when we were talking about the Renaults is, yeah, the Archer brothers um, were kind of a famous race team. And I think they dabbled in both of them. I think they did the Strohs jeep trucks uh, which we also featured back in the day on bat a couple of those you can go uh pretty deep on the archives and find some of those all this weird stuff that was on you know kalamazoo michigan craigslist that i somehow found in 08 or whatever but uh yeah those trucks um and that race series you can find some some pictures and some videos that that will make you shake your head <laughs> no tube frame dude these were i mean i guess they probably took out the seat belt presenter and maybe put in some racing <laughs> belts and some you know kirky seat but yeah no um also fun fact uh great great uh great archer bros drop 
Uh, a lot of people forget that Steve Saline drove a Ford Ranger in that series and Ooh. tore it up. Wow. Um, Podium. Podiums for Steve Saline. Yeah, we got we got to get some of these guys together. Parker Johnstone, Steve Saline. We got to we got to rehash it all out. All the the glory years, Bass driving alliances and and uh, Dodge D fifties and Ford Rangers. Man, I mean, I back in that day when I was a little kid, like I liked those Ford Rangers, like the four wheel drive version. So I, th- I mean, I would like look at what the engine specs and stuff on those. I mean, they, I don't think they were racing like the V6 version. I think they were running like 2.2 liter fours <laughs> trying to push those things around the racetrack. I don't know. I think they gave them sticky tires and those Rangers look like they have like a funky Celine-esque body kit on them. And then you get those yellow white livery and you go tear it up. So anyway, I'm into it. I, I'd love to know where some of those have ended up. Uh, or if we could have some of the actual race cars and trucks come through BAT, I think those would maybe raise eyebrows enough after 200,000 cars to get a get a spot on uh, on the site. What do you think? No, Randy's totally right. Yeah, definitely check out uh, Race Truck Challenge on YouTube. All the vids are like super low res, but it doesn't matter. They're wonderful. And isn't it funny that, that Europe had like the super awesome 944 Turbo Rothmans Cup with all like the big names and in the U.S. we're cheering on, you know, Nissan hard bodies rubbing <clears throat> Ford Rangers. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, totally. Anyway, great finds. Uh, that's a good submission to, to stir up some uh, interesting text discussion. And I'm sure once that thing hits live on the site, some people, maybe we can post some videos to the listing or, or uh, get people fired up about it again. But yeah, when you submit weirdo stuff to BAT, we're always happy to give a little... Uh, publicity nudge in the podcast talking about some stuff that's coming onto the site soon. So hopefully that'll be one of them. Uh, next topic is one that's asked about all the time. We love answering, uh, sort of user questions and this one didn't come explicitly as a podcast question, but it's just one that it's, it's sometimes, I mean, people don't even know Howard or the curation team at BAT and they fire first with this, like, like, feeling deep in their bones about when I'm going to sell my car because I'm going to time the calendar of when this is going to make sense. I've got a whatever Camaro convertible vet convertible and I'm not selling it until, uh, you know, April 1st because the leaves are going to turn, you know, they're going to, uh, you know, the snow is going to melt and I am going to see so many more bids on my, on my car, my convertible or my motorcycle or whatever. And I I think it's really interesting to see that we see so much data really contrary to that, like the opposite. Um, And we see so much action in the winter time. And I think it's just interesting to talk about uh, what the realities are there and what we see in terms of perception from sellers uh, and from bidders alike. Uh, And just talk about that a little bit, Howard, what do you think? Yeah, we totally have after six plus years doing uh, doing auctions, you know, kind of a running joke in the office around selling season and when that is. And obviously selling season is 12 months out of the year. But but yeah, I mean, it's just this whole perception and dynamic around, as Randy said, timing your sale for the best result, you know, whether that's the best time during the day, the best day of the week, you know, the best season of the year. Uh my personal opinion is I chalk it mostly up to, to superstition. Um, and that's fine. People, you know, it's funny, like, uh, 
sellers who sell a lot of cars on BAT, there are some that only want their auctions to end on Mondays. And there are some that says that say, I never want Mondays. I only want Thursdays or Fridays. And uh, my mind goes to like the ultimate example of like traditional, uh, when should it end? Like eBay Sunday night and my auction Sunday evening. And we like, we get, we still get requests for that guys that have been around for years and sold cars. Like, you know, Hey Howard, I, I want to make sure this ends on Sunday night. Right. And it's like, dude, we've never done that. Although weekend auctions are something we talk about. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind uh, experimenting with weekend auctions. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I just think it's, it's super interesting. I think a lot of that is legacy pre-internet um, and maybe non sort of auction dynamic, right? There's such the type of stuff we list uh, create such a dynamic of energy and scarcity and, and bid now, or you're, you know, you're not going to see another one of these for three years while you're looking for them. So honestly, if, if I'm looking for something that's not going to come around for a long time and it's in January versus March, am I going to think about that substantially different? I'm, I'm probably not. So, but I think back in the, maybe the olden days, right. You're putting a, you're putting a for sale sign in the windshield down at the end of your driveway on some like rural road <laughs> where people are coming by uh, and there's snow on your convertible. I get it. Right. I mean, that's not really going to work, but um, I think the internet has, you know, the, the uh, reach that the vehicles have uh, on any internet platform, but certainly on BAT. Uh, I mean, we just, you know, closed out the year and saw, uh, just a massive uptick November, December, right? December was, you know, cars were selling and volume was um, the, ha- the highest it's ever been, frankly. And uh, there have to be buyers to drive that. And I've always thought that the seasonality discussion was more on the seller side also than on the buyer side. It's not like, oh, the buyers are, you know, Hold up in their house in the winter, and so they're not, they don't have any money to spend, or they don't have any attention to give to this sort of stuff. It always seems like it's there's plenty of buyers around whenever there's a good listing on BAT. That could be any day of the year, any year, you know, any moment. Uh, but seller, it's the seller that gets the superstition, right? It's the seller that gets the concern. I don't want to sell my motorcycle in December, and and I get it, right? I mean, do you want your car to be the last car? ending on new year's eve or do you want your car to be the you know first car out of the shoot you know after some uh, i don't know major major event of some some i don't know sporting event political event or you know i don't know something happening natural disaster right i mean there's some things you kind of maybe want to take into consideration but i think we've seen i mean i remember on on uh, Christmas Eve once, uh, it was actually a car of mine, my Mustang, Howard. I think you remember that fastback that I uh, sold, and then it sold a couple times on BAT since. Um, a car that I obviously track and follow to this day, but it sold once on. I don't know why, but we had it end on Christmas Eve and it had this gangbuster finish, right? And it's like people say all the time, oh, well, make sure, you know, you give plenty of buffer around, you know, any any uh, holiday or anything like that. And that thing just killed it. It had this bidding war and it's Christmas Eve. I don't know where these people were, whether they were on their phones and doing family stuff or whether they were, uh, you know, didn't care about schedule of the holiday or whether they were traveling or whatever, but they went nuts after that Mustang. And I remember sitting there just shaking my head going like, you know, it doesn't matter what day you sell as long as you have a good presentation and a good 
vehicle, first of all, and are engaged in the comments as usual, that sort of stuff. It goes super well. So anyway, that was a, that was one of my anecdotes on it. Totally. Uh, yeah. Another one is, is, uh, like Monday holidays, best kept se- best kept secret, best day to end your car on BAT Monday holiday. We've ended auctions every single Monday holiday, I think for the most part, uh, since, since the start. And man, I remember like 2016, 17, 18, I'm texting Randy on whatever labor day, Memorial day, whatever it is, like another Monday holiday, like best day ever. Like we killed it, sold every car and, and, uh, I always think that's that's a funny thing. But yeah, I, I agree with Randy. People's the whole timing. It's it's kind of a bygone era uh, uh, topic, right? Like people's time today is more flexible than it's ever been. Like what someone can be doing at any given point in the day um, can be anything, and is often bidding on cars. Um, the whole like eBay Sunday night, yeah, you know, like in nineteen ninety eight, like you were home then, and so it made sense to end an auction. But yeah, that's. Uh, that's not the case anymore. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the truth is uh, well-presented cars that are, um, you know, with great sellers uh, and if the car is neat, it's going to sell well, really no matter when it is listed. Um, that is really the honest truth. Um, but, you know, it's, it's funny to see people's uh, uh, opinions and feelings around when they're selling stuff. Yeah. And we think of it in an interesting way, right? We do seven-day auctions. So we're always thinking, you know, a week ahead. We're like, oh, can we start a car today because it's going to end on this, you know, day or this moment. And so our team is always having to think about that and field those questions about, you know, which day do we launch it? Because uh, exactly seven days or or almost seven days uh, after the launch date is – uh, when that thing will be ending. So we always need to make sure that we're kind of cognizant of the calendar and what's happening. And our team does a great job of that. Um, and I think, yeah, we've seen, uh, some amazing results. Yeah. I mean, president's day was a couple days ago, right. And there were six figure cars selling on BAT, uh, just a couple days ago. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we look at that, um, sometimes as a benefit because, uh, you can kind of get into, Uh, game theory sort of psychology, right? Are people sitting around not working that day? So they have even more time to spend on their uh, devices or watching auctions? Uh, Or are they busy that day on their fishing trip or whatever, right? I mean, you can, you can kind of steer this thing in multiple directions if you're trying to, trying to figure it out. But the the data shows and the sales shows, which obviously are all on BAT, you can go back and look at any date in time um, in our in our past yeah, six years of doing auctions and see what happened on Christmas Eve or on New Year's Eve or on uh, uh, any, any different sort of holiday. We have taken a few different holidays where we've stopped uh, having auctions close. But uh, it's certainly the lesson has been keep them moving, keep them uh, ending on those days as well, because uh, buyers, frankly, show up and they have time and and focus on those days and they end up, um, you know, bidding and, and charging really hard. And, you know, maybe another layer of that. I mean, people have always asked, oh, you know, you do you do all your auctions in the middle of the day uh, on Monday through Friday. Uh, people are at work or can people not bid or whatever. And yeah, maybe the first, I don't know, a couple months or maybe even a couple years, we kind of maybe second guess that a little bit and we're talking about it and even discussing it. But I think if you look at the results on BAT, it's pretty hard to argue that there's, there's, it's been prohibitive to bidding. I think that people, you know, find a way if there's that car that's not going to show up and this is the, the one that you want 
it's on your watch list and you're getting your text alert and your, your phone alert, uh, that it's ending in an hour, you know, you figure a way to get out of your, uh, your work meeting and make it happen. Yeah, I think maybe we're a little spoiled being uh, uh, headquartered in San Francisco where it uh, it doesn't snow, right? We're communicating with someone in Michigan who's like, I'm snowed in, can't get the car to the garage. Like, this is a horrible time to sell. We're like, well, I don't know, we're 70 degrees where I'm sitting. We're going out for, you know, we're going out for lunch in a few minutes. Uh, you know, people are driving around here. They might not be in some parts of the country, but even like the historically big sales, like the whole Arizona auction week. That's in the dead of winter and third week of January, right? Barrett-Jackson made its name selling cars in the dead of winter, right? Europe, like Retromobile could not be at the mo- at a more inhospitable time uh, uh, in the first weekend of February in Paris. Like the weather is dreadful and that's the date. And it's probably the biggest car sales event in all of Western Europe. So, you know, to each his own. Yeah. And I mean, those auction companies are no dummies, right? I mean, they've, they've seen many cycles and many years they've been around for decades and the fact that they're doing things in the middle of winter, um, honestly, I think it gives people something to look forward to. It gives, you know, people some liveliness to their, uh, to their winter. Yeah. If they're stuck in some winter weather or just sort of a more dreary sort of cycle or honestly events, sometimes you go and you know, this Howard, right. I mean, sometimes it's kind of dry on events for a, you know, three, four, five month period. There can be not a lot of action. Uh, and in, in California and some warmer States, sometimes there are winter events to counter that. But in, in so much of the, uh, the U S and certainly Canada and elsewhere where our audience, uh, resides, um, it can be, yeah, it can be sort of a quiet season, right? So honestly, picking up a car or picking up a project, I mean, the kind of stuff I'm looking for in January and February and March is stuff to kind of get ready for the, for the, uh, good season that I know is coming. So that makes me, uh, you know, kind of all the more keen and, and tuned in as a, as a bidder. So if you're a seller and people are sitting around, like, can't wait to, to click on your listing, that's sort of opportunity. So, yeah, anyway, an interesting topic for sure. Um, and one, like Howard says, that we just volley around in the BAT office all the time because we get people all the time that are, um, yeah, not excited about selling in Jan, Feb, March. But we just encourage you to go check out the the uh, uh, watch and view counts on listings and uh, watch the bid action that we're seeing. And, um, I mean, the results kind of kind of speak for themselves in the winter months. Flip side of that is uh, there is the corner case market of winter vehicles, which sellers only want to sell in the winter months. Uh, for example, Chrysler Snow Runners, uh, which we have uh, maybe listed uh, almost as many as, as they produce. I don't know how many they made, but I would listed- argue uh, we've probably listed more than any other venue. Can we claim? Can we claim that? Has somebody like sold a lot of twenty five of those somewhere else, and so we can't claim to be the the champion there, but what are we, we sold 10 or 11 of those now? I don't know, but I don't know that people were restoring snow runners before they started being, you know, having their own model page on BAT, but that's a thing now. And that's, that's, that's definitely a thing. I, uh, I was trying to describe to my 10 year old son what a Chrysler snow runner is. And 
I have a 56 Chrysler. And so I think his mind went there and I was like, no, okay. It's this little motorbike with skis on the bottom. And he's like, I don't know. He doesn't think that'll qualify for the latest uh, Red Bull extreme uh, competitions these days, but uh, who knows? Maybe it would, but yeah. Anyway, what other winter stuff? I mean, we have a, a new ATC ATV category. You could, uh, you could purpose some of that stuff. Uh, you know, vintage Honda, uh, pilots before they were, they used that name for SUVs. They used it for, you know, all-terrain vehicles, which is pretty awesome. We've sold a good number of those. That one's on the site right now, I think, or just finished Howard in front of the wood pile. I don't know if you saw that one, had a super cool, uh, set of photography with it. What else is a winter rig? I don't think the boats we sell qualify as a winter vehicle. Maybe some of the four wheel drives or SUVs. Oh man, you had me at in front of the wood pile. I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> Right I'm, I'm dead serious dude go look go look at uh, the atc or atv category you'll see that thing i think it sold for a whole bunch of money more than a crx or whatever so we got some tractors you know i don't know if you i'm not I, I didn't you know grow up in tractor country if that's a thing but uh i don't know if that's a winter vehicle but certainly a certainly a, a all-terrain vehicle uh and if you want you know something affordable with a lamborghini badge on it or a porsche badge you know you can yeah. you can go the tractor out yeah. And funny there, exactly what you mentioned, the dynamic is the funny part, right? Because those people, you're like, okay, it's August, let's go, let's sell one of those. And those people are like, no, you know, I'm not selling my snow runner. I want a slot, you know, the second week of December. So whoever buys it can use it all season or something like that. Anyway, kind of the opposite, but we see it all. We see all those requests. And yeah, anyway, if you have any questions about seasonality or, um, yeah, questions or thoughts around that. We'd love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us, you know, podcast at bringatrailer.com. Shoot us a note or shoot us some other questions you'd like to hear about in terms of the dynamics of buying and selling on BAT. Uh, That was great talking about that, Howard. I really loved it. So uh, now we, yeah, move into the next uh, part of our show today. um, And uh, we're excited for Howard's interview. All right. We have a really awesome guest speaker this week. I'm super excited to welcome Jason Van Sickle. Jason is the curator of vehicles for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. Jason, glad you're here. How are things in Indy? Oh, thanks for having me. It's it's good. It's a little cold and we just got a big uh, snow, so um, it's probably not as good as uh, you over there in California, right? There you go. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And and for those of you who may not be as familiar with the museum, it really is such a special place with a lot of really spectacular cars that we'll get to hear a bit more about today from Jason. Um, it's actually located right inside the Speedway Oval, right in the infield of the racetrack. So uh, when you report to work every day, do you, do you drive in under turn three, whatever it is, and, and you're working from Indianapolis Motor Speedway every day of the week? Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously, it's right inside the south end of the the oval between turn one and two, and uh, the iconic tunnel that you hear a lot of people talk about uh, entering underneath the racetrack. And when you come up the tunnel, you see the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum right in front of you. And you know it's still one of the opportunities to to really just have goosebumps and and kind of pinch yourself, saying you know this is a an opportunity that I have. Well, you know. I- I agree with you, and, and you guys were, were kind enough to welcome me there uh, when I was there in December 2019, so a few months before COVID. Uh, and yeah, you can really feel you can really feel the history there. It's totally an institution, and, and you step on the grounds, and 
uh, yeah, there's there's something special going on there. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite things to point out is, you know, the, the two and a half mile oval uh, built in 1909. Um, the dimensions, if you will, uh, of the track really haven't changed. Obviously, the surface from going to most notably the 3.2 million bricks uh, throughout the years to asphalt. But really, when it comes to major sporting events, you only have a few iconic locations like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Augusta, Wimbledon, that the athletes throughout the, the decades play on the same course. And that's something that's really, really amazing to, to think about, too. Totally. So, yeah, I think it'd be awesome if you'd be able to give us uh, just a little bit of history of the museum, uh, the relationship to the Speedway and anything else you might think would be interesting to know. Yeah, you know, the the museum is an interesting uh, dynamic with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We're actually separate. We're separate 501c3 not-for-profit, separate from IMS, our new, or well, IMS's new owners, Roger Pinsky and Pinsky Entertainment. Uh, The foundation, which operates the IMS Museum, uh, opened in 1956, and it was a very uh, small collection uh, at that time. It was developed by Tony Holman, who the Holman family owned the track from 1945 to early 2020 before selling it to to Penske Entertainment. Um, It started with 12 cars on the wing of the newly built administration building. Uh, That was on the corner of 16th Street in Georgetown, just outside of Turn 1. Uh, In 1976, our current building was built, um, and our collection has, has grown. Um, obviously automobiles are what we are known for. We have over 200 automobiles, uh, race cars, pace cars, passenger cars, uh, potpourri of, of different, um, automobiles in that regard, uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later, but then memorabilia, trophies, uh, historical artifacts, uh, you name it, we have it in the collection. No, that's really interesting. And so is is Indy considered a super speedway like you would consider Daytona or Talladega or some of those? Yeah. Um, you know, with the with the speeds that they reach, uh, even the NASCARs, obviously, at a, at a, they're bigger, heavier cars than the Indy cars. But, um, you know, Indy cars, they go around there um, now at pole speeds, low 230s. Um, back in the late nineties, Ari Leyendijk has the four lap average record that he broke in 1996. When you think about that, how long ago that was at 236.4 miles per hour for a four lap average. So he was entering turn, turn three at over 250 miles an hour. And even the NASCARs, um, you know, they, they book it around there. Um, you know, they're, they're doing high 40 second laps around the speedway when you're thinking they're pushing 3,500 pounds and uh, obviously more of a, a brick through the air than an Indy car, if you will. But um, yeah, it, it is a super speedway, though banking, it's it's very low banking in today's standards. It's only nine degrees, 12 minutes compared to, uh, you know, somewhere like Daytona that's over 30 degree banking. Yeah, no, that was going to be my next point. When you consider the speeds, you just, uh, uh, you just rattled off. I mean, considering that you're not up on the on the Daytona banking, which uh, you know makes carrying a high rate of speed uh, maybe less treacherous. At at Indy, you're uh, you're turning left four times, but uh, you're 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 not up in the air. Yeah, one of the one of the biggest things for the 500 is the drivers. They it the track looks so unassuming. Uh, quite honestly, you know it's it's four 
identical, uh, physical wise, identical turns, um, two long five eighths of mile straightaways and then two short shoots between those turns. But, um, you talk to the drivers and they, each corner has its own, uh, nuances, whether it's a bump in a certain area that they'll talk about, um, you know, the different time, because the track is so low banked, uh, different times during the day, especially during the progression of whether it's a fuel run, a tire run, or even just how the sun is going over the track later in the race, the, the track changes and the shading and things like that. Um, so for such an unassuming track, if you look at it, if someone was to draw it on the map, um, it, it strikes fear in, in every driver that really uh, gets behind a wheel of, of a race car around the place. You know, just just the, the sheer enormity of the facility itself is uh, is pretty wild. So uh, for folks who haven't been there, definitely highly recommend. Um, Jason, would, would love to hear a little bit about your background. Um, you know, when I hear curator of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum, my mind goes to, you know, a, a seasoned, distinguished, older gentleman, maybe ex-chief judge of the Amelia Island Concours, uh, but you are not that. You, you, you are 29 years old. Uh, you're a very impressive and knowledgeable young man when it comes to this stuff. So uh, how did you get the curator job? Um, tell, us about, tell us about your career path. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty amazing. I I bit of a blur to be quite honest. Um, you know, my going back to when I was very young, I would my father and grandfather were both automotive uh, hobbyists and, and mostly in hot rodding and muscle cars. So you know, going to car shows, going to just being around vintage automobiles, um, mainly American. Uh, you know, it was always something that I kind of gravitated to through through that family aspect. Um, when I was going through, through school and eventually university, I, uh, really wanted to do something with the automobiles, especially with the history, but knowing that it's such a niche area, um, being from Indianapolis, uh, obviously the 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is such a cultural icon and, and, um, aspect of the, the state itself that, you know, that interests me too. So, uh, when I was in university, I actually started right after the 2011 race, um, undergrad, I was a docent in the museum and a tour guide. So I was giving tours to, to hundreds of people, thousands of people over the year, really, um, of the speedway on the bus and, and things like that. And, uh, fortunately in 2015, uh, after I graduated, I was offered a full-time position. Uh, and then since then I've, I've really just worked my way, um, I guess through the ranks, if you will, um, and, and where I am right now. No, that's awesome. Is so? Is that one of those deals to, to be to be the the curator? You, you start by sweeping the floors, and if you hang around long enough, uh, maybe you get called up for for the dream job. You know, I guess in my I guess in my uh, my situation, it was. You know, it's you know I look back and I, I always think you know 2015 or 2011 version of me would never think you know I had the opportunity to uh, to hang around some of the vehicles that we have in the collection or some of the experiences. Uh, that I that I have, so it's truly I cherish that, and um, obviously look use that as as a you know background to to push the museum in, into the future. It must be funny if if you're interviewing new docents. I imagine they're probably two or three times your age, uh, but you probably know two or three times more than them about indie history. So that that those must be funny interactions uh, when those uh, men and women come into your office. Yeah, when I when I walked in there, uh, I was 20 years old with long hair, and 
uh, you know, that the first thing they said was you're going to bring our age down by decades. Cause I was the youngest person there by, by probably 30 years at, at the, at the most. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to look back. That is great. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about kind of the, the core collection currently at the museum um, and what you're doing with uh, deaccessioning some vehicles on Bring a Trailer. Yeah, so obviously the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum, one of our, our mission is to celebrate the thrill and excitement of the 111 years of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, the... The collection is is pretty broad. Um, Tony Holman that I mentioned before, and Carl Kaiser, our first curator, all the way back in the the nineteen fifties. Uh, you know, they they actually had two museums under the foundation. Uh, they had the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum that I mentioned earlier, that started off as that twelve car uh, display uh, in the wing of the administration building. But Tony Holman was originally from Terre Haute, Indiana, which is about uh, two hours southwest of um right on the illinois border and um he had another museum under the foundation called the early wills museum so while he was collecting indianapolis 500 race cars winners and 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 various different race cars he was also collecting passenger cars so we have a broad depth of passenger cars uh included in our race car collection uh, we have over 35 winning Indy 500 uh, winning cars uh, dating back all the way to the first 1911 Marmon Wasp that was built in Indianapolis. Um, the most recent Indy 500 winner that we own is Jacques Villeneuve's 1995 uh, Reynard. Uh, but then we also have some uh, cars that are on loan. Uh, most most recent is the Alexander Rossi 201600th running winning car. So we have a few cars that are on loan. And we do temporary exhibits. Um, we usually do two major exhibits a year, which will bring in utilized cars from the collection, but then also bring in loan cars from across the country. Um, we also have a large uh, passenger car collection that I mentioned, uh, a large Indiana-built car uh, collection. We have over 30 Indiana-built uh, marquees. Um, that, that is obviously uh, going back to the, the past of the Indianapolis 500 and the history, the Indiana-built uh, automobiles played a huge part in that, in the construction, uh, the need for a speedway from Carl Fisher, the the main driver of the building of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So Indiana built cars are, are close to our mission too. Uh, and we've done some different exhibits to celebrate that, but the deaccessioning process, um, you know, over the last three years, we've, uh, did some internal review, um, soul searching, if you will, uh, utilizing our mission and our statement of scope to um, uh, highlight cars that tend not to support our mission in our scope. So uh, that is where we we started the process of reviewing. Uh, and then that that actually was where we were introduced to each other uh, with with BAT. And, um, you know, we thought it was a great opportunity and a great platform uh, to utilize these deaccession items. So since last June, we've been uh, offering cars on BAT um, to the public. And it's it's a great opportunity because one, uh, it offers cars that we've had for, in some cases, decades that may not support our mission to the fullest. But those stories of that vehicle continue to a new, uh, you know, owner, new generation. Uh, so it's a, it's a great opportunity. Absolutely. No, it's, it's been an honor to work with you guys. I think uh, to date, the museum has listed uh, around 40 vehicles on BAT. And I know we've got many more to go that will 
uh, keep us busy throughout 2021. And I know our community members are super stoked to be able to, you know, uh, have really the once in a lifetime chance to acquire uh, really special cars from from the institution. And uh, every single vehicle you guys have listed has been has been terrific. And and, uh, there's been a lot of excitement behind all of them. Yeah, we, we love the, the awareness, um, you know, the, the commenters are, are, you know, we've we've learned so much from our cars. Um, you know, a lot of these cars were purchased in the 50s and 60s and, you know, records are sparse and they didn't quite honestly really care about provenance like we do today um, and, and various other things. So the commenters have been very helpful on kind of highlighting any sort of potential discrepancies we may have or lore that have, have come with the car things like that. So it's, it's been a learning experience on both ends. Now that the, the inaugural 1911 winner, the Marmon Wasp, was that Ray Haroon that drove that? Yeah, that was Ray Haroon. So, uh, he was a, he was a fascinating character. Um, at that time, you know, a lot of the drivers in these early automotive races were actually engineers and they, they were dual purpose. They, they got a paycheck from the company as an engineer. So people like Lewis Chevrolet, Bob Berman, um, the Duesenberg brothers to an extent, you know, they were, they were in some cases self-taught. Some were, were, you know, what we would call higher educated schooling wise, but a lot of them were self-taught, uh, learn on the fly geniuses, quite frankly. And they weren't afraid to hop in a race car and, and test what they designed. So, uh, Ray Haroon actually for the 500, he retired a year before, um, Howard Marmon from the, the Marmon company that, produced the Indiana built company that produced the Marmon Wasp and passenger cars, uh, convinced Ray to come out of retirement. Um, he entered the race. He started 28th, which still today is the farthest back a winner has uh, started for the 500 to win the race and, um, won, won the race on strategy, uh, outright, you know, pacing to save tires. Whereas other, uh, he could go faster, but he averaged 75 miles an hour to save tires, which then would, at that time, tremendously save time during the pits because pit stops would be tens of minutes, let alone, you know, tens of seconds like they are today. Totally. So, yeah, no, I, I can I can talk the talk a little bit about indie history. Uh, don't ask me who won the race in 1912, but but I know about Ray Haroon. Um, but in those days, most I mean, up until what the 20s, most, if not all racers had riding mechanics Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of that job was, was spotting traffic and other, other cars on the track, right? Yeah, no, the, the, the two seater cars, at least for Indianapolis that lasted until 1922, um, it, technically Ray, uh, skirted the rules. It was an unwritten rule, put it that way. Uh, there was nothing that said you had to have a riding mechanic, but it was kind of de facto. Um, so they came up with this streamlined single seater Marmon Wasp that was wild and actually, um, the other 39 competitors kind of cried foul and said it was dangerous because the, the, the reasons that you mentioned, uh, the riding mechanic would, would act as a spotter, uh, would tell the, the driver what was going on. They also didn't have a uh, fuel, uh, well, electric or mechanical fuel and oil pumps. So they would hand pump pressure into the fuel and oil tank throughout the race to, to keep, uh, keep the, the pressure up. Um, so to bypass the controversy, uh, Ray fastened a rearview mirror on the cowling of the Marmon Wasp in what we believe is the first use of a uh, rearview mirror in a, in a race car in, in an automobile to to the level that it was. So um, 
you know, that, that car is historic in, in very ways, but even mundane ways that we think today of, of the rear view mirror. Interesting. Yeah, no, Jason, I'm sure you could give a, a symposium on uh, indie racing history circa 1911 to 1925. We'll have to, we'll have to have you back to, to get into that. Yeah, those, um, are, those are the golden years. Those are, that's the interesting bunch. Certainly, certainly. So, so I think at one point, um, at the peak, uh, the museum had something like 300 vehicles under its under its belt. So tell us a little bit about kind of maintenance and how you keep up that uh, quantity of cars. Do you guys have in-house mechanics? Uh, yeah. How does that whole system work? Yeah, so we, we do. Uh, historically, we've had a, uh, you know, in-house restoration, if you will. It actually dates back to to a race team that was owned by Mary Holman George, who was the daughter of Tony Holman. And in the fifties, she owned a race team and it was called how racing H O W. Uh, and it was located on the, the grounds of the speedway outside the track, um, outside turn two. Uh, and what, when the racing season was over and they had, you know, midgets, sprints, champ cars. Um, but in the winter time, they would also restore and repair um, cars for the foundation. Um, so eventually how racing was kind of just absorbed by the foundation and became our full-time restoration department. And, and, uh, we actually had our, one of our longtime, um, restoration members, uh, AJ Fairbairn retire. Uh, he's had a long career. He's a Kiwi that's traveled the world with F2, F3, uh, teams. And then in the nineties settled, um, put his stakes into the United States and, and started working for us. But he had another gentleman that dates back all the way to the sixties that unfortunately passed away in the, in the 2014 named Bill Spurley, who was, who was a German. And then there was another, uh, uh, restoration tech named Hans Spurback. So at one point our restoration team was, uh, two Germans and a Kiwi, which you would never think about in, in, you know, Indianapolis, um, but, but the, the knowledge that they had was, was second to none. Um, we have, uh, we're looking at a three person restoration department now where it's actually a transition, which is pretty exciting. You know, we're trying to elevate the, the restoration department from, you know, a, a garage, if you will, that just, um, they, you know, they, they keep the cars running, if you will, to, uh, to, uh, restoration department that is, um, on par with the, the lore of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the museum. So it's a bit of an exciting time. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of new faces joining the crew, um, but, but it's exciting. You, know, you guys were kind enough not only to give me a full tour of, of the museum and the current exhibit uh, exhibits, but also to bring me down to the basement, um, which I know is, is not open to the public. Um, and, and you personally showed me around there and and really uh really neat all the all the cars down there that uh, a lot of folks probably wouldn't wouldn't believe you guys have um but on that note yeah tell us about kind of what the what are the current exhibits um uh if someone walked in the museum today and and what are the future plans um on that end yeah um obviously covid in 2020 like everyone else it's it's affected us um, you know, we had to juggle some of our exhibit plans and, and quite frankly, we, had, we lucked out in a way in November of, uh, 2019, we opened an exhibit called from the vault. Um, and it's, it's, a it's pretty much our cars. Uh, it's exciting, um, because we're highlighting our cars, the potpourri, if you will, uh, the diverse nature of our collection. Um, because for the longest time, the basement was off limits and you had to be a, 
a uh, pretty, um, you know, special person to get down there, if you will. Um, but we pretty much brought the basement up to the top. So we, we highlighted a wide variety of cars. So uh, right now, and it's it's been adjusted because we had to uh, extend it due to COVID, and, and I don't want to bore you with that, but uh, it, it will remain open until uh, the end of April 2021. So in from the vault, we have our 1954 Mercedes W196 streamlined body car, the Formula One streamliners, beautiful car. Uh, we have the 1964 250LM that won the 1965 24 Hours Le Mans, the last time Ferrari won outright at Le Mans. Uh, we also have our uh, GT40, uh, Holman and Moody built car that participated in 1966 that was driven by uh, Mark Donahue and Paul Hanskin, or Paul Hawkins. And uh, Walt Hanskin was, it was in, in the 24 Hours of Daytona. And then some indie cars. Uh, we have a Mercedes Type S passenger car that's part of it. Just a very diverse, some champ dirt cars. Uh, Janet Guthrie's 1978 uh, Wildcat. Just a wild, wild amount of cars in that exhibit. Um, no, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I mean, separate from you know the the, the Indy 500 winners and, and the super significant uh, cars that tie directly, whose history tie directly to the Speedway. Um, you just mentioned uh, the two, I mean, maybe the two most uh, significant cars the museum has um, are that W196, which I think was a Sterling Moss and Fangio car. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was uh, kind of in the crossover era when uh, Formula One races could have open wheel cars and also cars with more closed body work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 250LM, which, as you uh, pointed out, was the 65 Le Mans winner. Unbelievable car to see in the flesh. Uh, that was Mastin Gregory and Jochen Rint. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Jochen Rint, one of my favorite drivers, drove Alpha GTAs in the 60s um, in, in uh, uh, small displacement sports car racing in Europe. And I think also the only uh, Formula One driver to posthumously win the championship uh, in yeah. 1970. I think he died in a practice, uh, practice crash at Monza, I believe. Um, mm-hmm but was far enough ahead in the points that year that, that he was the champion. So uh, those yeah. two cars, the museum has owned those two for, for 50 plus years. And those are uh, really spectacular. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty amazing to, to have those as part of the collection. Obviously you wouldn't think um, of the, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum owning those two Formula One or road racing cars, the legendary cars. But um, yeah, the, the, uh, the 196 was donated by Mercedes-Benz in 1965, so 10 years after the fact. Uh, Fangio drove it in a Formula Libre race in 1954 with the three-liter, uh, and then it did participate with the streamlined body. So it actually had both the monopost and the streamlined body in the two races that that particular car ran. Uh, Moss drove it at Monza and then uh, threw a rod, uh, so it unfortunately didn't have the success uh, as it did in that Formula Libre race, but the um, the Ferrari was purchased in 1970, so only five years after after its triumph uh, as part of the NART team in, in 1965. But it also ran; it kind of bounced back and forth, running either to the 24 Hours Daytona or going back to Le Mans. And it actually ran that year, uh, 1970s 24 Hours of of Le Mans before, or sorry, 24 Hours of Daytona before being purchased by the foundation. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, a lot of those Ferraris soldiered on after after they were brand new. Uh, I mean, I think my favorite stat is uh, a lot of people forget that I think uh, John Morton finished second at 
Daytona or Sebring in what the time uh, was a, a clapped out Ferrari Daytona in 1979. So mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. much like the 250 LM that they kept racing them. Yeah, they were competitive too. And that's, that's the, uh, the, the good part about it. I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's hard to remember because now the longevity of, of race cars is, uh, you know, Indy cars, some cases, the tubs are from 20, 2012. They've just been altered. Uh, depending on whatever the bodywork requirement was. But, um, you know, a, a year-old race car was the oldest thing in the world, and no one wanted it because they wanted all the new and improved stuff. But having these cars that have run, like we have um, the 1939-1940 winner is a Maserati 8CTF. Uh, Wilbur Shaw won both those years. But that car ran another 13-plus years uh, competitively in the 500. Um, and that car is part of our winning 500 uh, cars. So it's not just uh, uh, American cars or any 500 cars. There are some some international flair part of our, our museum. Now, speaking of winners, I've noticed in some of your BAT auction listings, you will often have, uh, well, you, you have videos in pretty much all of them, but sometimes you will have uh, current IndyCar drivers that do a little walk around and test drive demonstration. So what's that like working at, uh, at the speedway, do you guys have drivers stopping by all the time? Is is Will Power and Simon Pagano dropping their head in your office every once in a while, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, they, they uh, that's one of the perks of the of the job to to get these drivers. Obviously, we try to work with their schedules. Uh, Will and and Will would be great actually right now with what he's doing on social media. He's just tearing it up there. So having him on a BAT uh, drive around, I don't know if the car will uh, will hold up with the, with the power that he put into it. But, uh, you know, we've had, we had three time 500 winner, uh, Johnny Rutherford. Um, you know, he drove, a, a, a Lincoln, uh, I think it was a 27 Lincoln, uh, town car. And then the next one he got in was a 39 Bantam. So, I mean, you had a car that was 20 plus feet long and then you had a car that was felt like six feet long. So, um, you know, it's great to have these guys. Um, they love it. They get kick out of it. Obviously, driving cars that uh, uh, they they have to learn, obviously. Uh, Model Ts have given them some trouble uh, because just the, the uh, nature of driving a Model T is, is, is difficult in today's world. But um, they have a blast. No, it's pretty funny. I, I don't know how much uh, instruction or coaching they get before they, they – uh... Uh, they hop in these cars, but you had uh, Heincliffe. I probably butchered his name. Heincliffe. Uh, he's like going 230 miles an hour around around the speedway, and then he's doing a walk around on the 1914 Franklin and, and taking it on a little test drive. It's uh, it, it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah. He loved. Uh, he yeah. He did a a 39 of Rolls Royce Wraith uh, town car that we offered, and he loved that car. Uh, and then he also enjoyed. We had a, a, a 29. Model T or sorry, Model A. And, uh, he, he really had a rumble seat. That was a really neat car that we offered, uh, just old hot rod feel, uh, even though it was pretty stock. Um, just, a, he had a blast driving that around. That's so cool. No, uh, you and I could keep riffing for, for, I feel a few more hours, but, uh, no, thank you for, uh, for being with us. This was super interesting. Um, a uh, quick, uh, quick note on, on the museum. So you guys are, are run by a foundation. The museum is a 501c3, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so tell us a little bit about kind of are, are you guys open for 
um, for visitors now? How can how can people support the museum? Um, and what are you guys doing this year? Yeah, no, it's um, you know that that's one of the biggest kind of misnomers that that people have uh, with the museum, uh, the understanding that we are a separate entity. Uh, obviously, being inside the Oval and it lends to that. Uh, but yeah, we're we're completely run by a, a separate five hundred one c three foundation um, that owns the collection, uh, manages the collection, uh, maintains the collection, and, and all that. Um, you know, COVID, like I mentioned, has been pretty tough. Uh, they we had um, obviously a year ago the shutdown. We were we were shut down for about four months, and then once again we were shut down for six weeks at the end of the year to the public. But we are open. We've uh, obviously. Uh, reevaluated all our, our safety protocols and, and with social distancing and mask and things like that. And hopefully uh, there's some, there's some uh, light at the end of the, the tunnel for that, but uh, we are open. Uh, we are in our winter hours right now, 10 to four open uh, every day. Uh, usually we're open every day, except Thanksgiving day and Christmas day to the public. Um, from, like I mentioned from the vault is, is open until the, the end of April uh, we also have our uh, Andy Granatelli exhibit uh, that will be open the remainder of 2021. That's highlighting the iconic larger than life owner, uh, most most known for his STP commercials and his time with that STP and promoting that. But obviously his his hard luck at the Indianapolis 500, eventually winning with Mario Andretti in 1969. Um, and then we look to close from the vault in late April. And then we can't announce it yet, but we have a summer exhibit uh, for 2021 that will honor a, a certain multi-winner Indianapolis 500 winner that will open May 1st. And we're, we're really excited to get that up and running. Uh, if you can't join us in person, um, obviously uh, your support is, is, is uh, much appreciated. Uh, you can find information on that at IndyRacingMuseum.org. No, that, that, that's awesome. You know, when I had come, when I had come to see you a year and a half ago, I was coming from Ann Arbor, where I was at the Michigan-Ohio State football game. Uh, but definitely near the top of my, my sporting experience list is, is uh, sitting in a box at the 500. So um, maybe if we keep having you on the podcast, I can, I can inch a little closer to those uh, box seats. Yeah, no, you, you'll, be a, you'll be a little uh, crowded compared to uh, Ann Arbor. I mean, what does that hold, 110,000? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we we double that. So we're about two hundred thirty thousand permanent seats, the largest uh, sporting oh, wow. arena in the world. So uh, you, you'll feel a little next time if you go to the five hundred and then go to another Michigan game. Uh, you'll you'll feel a little empty compared to the five hundred. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you again. Uh, really, really fun chatting with you, and uh, I look forward to, to stopping by the Speedway and the museum later this year. Well, thank you. It's been great. Look forward to doing it again. And uh, yeah, the, uh, Jason and the museum have some really neat cars coming up uh, on BAT over the next few weeks and months. So keep your eye out for those. And uh, Jason, pleasure to have you. And thanks again. Thank you.